sort of be our, uh, our charge to the church as we're wrapping up one year and we're coming into the next, that we would continue to hold fast to the Lord with joy. Again, whatever trials, whatever tribulations that you may endure, that you do it in, in a Christ-like strength. Remembering what uh, Alan had taught this morning in Sunday school where he had cited Philippians 4.13, a verse that I didn't read in the opening reading, but it's coming up. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context of that verse is contentment. It's not about winning an NBA championship or a marathon or any other way that athletes may apply that particular verse to their achievements. But that verse is about being content and being joyful in Christ who strengthens us in all circumstances, whether we have plenty or whether we are in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is a letter that Paul wrote from prison. And so it's, it's with that in mind when you hear about the number of times that the word joy comes up. This is a man who is joyful, though he was put in chains for preaching the gospel. That is easily the theme of the book of Philippians, joy. Whether it is the word joy or rejoicing or something to whatever context in which that word joy finds itself in this letter, it comes up some 15 times, four short chapters, and yet the word joy appears that many times. You think that Paul had a particular message for this church when he wrote to them. This is a letter that has been especially meaningful for me in my years of ministry. The very first book that I ever preached through expository was the book of Philippians. When I began my podcast, and I really did not know what I was going to start with, some friends of mine and I had kind of talked through doing a podcast together, but then when they kind of bailed out at the end. Ah, I wasn't interested in doing it anyway. Well, I was left with this podcast. What do I do with this? And I decided to go back to the book that I started with, the very first expository series that I ever did. So I opened the podcast with Philippians. When I became a senior pastor, as I mentioned this morning, I finished the book of Ephesians, but then right when I got done with Ephesians, I did Philippians. So there, is, there has been a, uh, a long history of me in the book of Philippians, and I, I seem to keep coming back to it over and over again. A book that is filled with joy. The motivation for Paul writing this letter to the Philippians, that he would encourage them in joy, even though he had been put in chains. So again, as I said, I want to do kind of an overview of this particular letter and draw out some of those highlights of joy that we see in the book of Philippians. This is the second of the prison epistles between Ephesians and Colossians. It would have been written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome around AD 62. It's approximately 1,600 words long. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm a word count guy. I, I like to know how long words are. When I started working for Tom and uh, he would manuscript out his sermons, I would ask him, Tom, how long is your sermon this week? And he would look it over and go, oh, about eight pages. I said, that didn't tell me anything. How long is your sermon? How many words? He goes, I don't know. I've never done a word count before. Well, I know the length of your sermon by your word count, and I can kind of estimate by your pace how long it would take you to do it. And whenever I write a manuscript of any kind, I'm always looking at how many words are in it, not how many pages are in it. So you can change the font size and whatever else, and that'll change your, your page count. So when I, when I read Philippians and I see that it's 1,600 words, I know that if I were speaking it out loud, it would take me about 10 to 12 minutes. 
So if you're looking for a book to do something devotional-wise with this week, you don't think you have a whole lot of time, I don't want to pour 30 minutes or an hour into it, but what book can I read that would just take me 15 minutes? Open up Philippians. Read it through out loud. You get to hear God speak out loud when you read his word out loud. Paul identifies himself as the author of the letter, of course, writing with Timothy, as said in the beginning, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about Paul planning the church in Philippi in Acts 16 during his second missionary journey. Paul had a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul and his companions set sail from Asia, landing at Neapolis, and came to Philippi, a Roman city named after Philip II. Anybody know the significance of Philip II? Whose father was Philip II? His son was? No, Alexander the Great. So Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father. The church in Philippi was the first church Paul planted in Europe, if you look on a map. Spent a lot of time in Asia, Asia Minor, uh, but Philippi was the first church he planted in Europe, according to the chronology we have in Acts. Paul's first convert was a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God. And it says in Acts 16, verse 14, her heart was opened by the Lord to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. That's regeneration. That's, that's what doctrinally we refer to as effectual calling right there. She heard the words that he said and understood them because, as plainly stated, the Lord opened her heart to understand them. It's likely that the Philippian church was then in Lydia's house. You know the story of Paul and Silas that were thrown in prison there in Philippi. And it was when they got out of prison, it says they went to Lydia's house and uh, as soon as they were let out of jail. And that's likely because that's where the church was meeting. So the church in Philippi was there in Lydia's home. She was a, a matriarch of sorts. It was in Philippi again where Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. And do you remember what it was that they were doing that got them thrown in prison? They were walking throughout Philippi and they were sharing the gospel. And there was this woman who was demon-possessed who was following them. Uh, in fact, the word there for her possession is the same word that we use for ventriloquist. So she was actually under the control of a demon, and the things that she's saying are as though words put into her by the satanic entity that was controlling her. And she was warning the people, don't listen to these men. They're going to tell you to follow after the Lord Most High. And Paul finally had enough of this. I would have loved to have seen this sight. Finally was irritated enough with this gal that he turns to her and rebukes her and casts the demon out of her. Well, she had certain handlers that used this girl to do her fortune telling and things like that. And it was through her that they were making money. And when they saw that the demon had been cast out of her, they couldn't use her anymore for fortune telling. And so their income, they were kind of like, like demonic pimps to a certain degree. And they realized their income through this girl they couldn't get anymore. So they got mad at Paul and Silas and had them beaten and then thrown in prison and they were 
locked in the lowest part of the dungeon in stocks. Like, like about, treated as about the worst criminals that, that could be treated. And so Paul and Silas are there in prison. They're locked in stocks for not doing anything wrong. They're in chains. It's dank. It's dark. It's damp. There's my Baptist alliteration for you there. And what do they begin doing in that dank cell? They began singing. They started singing hymns. Probably something like we sang tonight. Wouldn't have been Be Thou My Vision and Amazing Grace. Uh, which, by the way, uh, my son was the one who selected Amazing Grace tonight to sing. That song turned 250 years old in 2023. Are you aware of that? So these great songs of praise they had lifted up to God while they're in stocks, and the prisoners heard them singing. And the prisoners are moved by the words that they hear coming from Paul and Silas. Likely what they were singing were psalms. So they're just lifting right out of the psalms and singing praises to God. What happens in the middle of this psalm sing? But an earthquake takes place. And it's an earthquake so violent, of course we know it was by the power and providence of God, that all the jail doors flew open. The jailer comes down after this earthquake to see if any of the prisoners were still in their cells. And he sees all the jail doors open. So he draws a sword to kill himself. Because for a Roman soldier, it was more disgraceful for him to have lost a prisoner under his watch. So he decided to take his own life. Kind of spare his, himself the shame, spare his family the shame. But as he was about to do this, Paul calls out, Do not harm yourself. We are still here. Now how amazing is that? Like all the prisoners that are there are not in league with Paul, but he has convinced them, though their jail cell doors are open, we're going to stay here. We're not going to go anywhere. And they had been so moved, perhaps, by the songs that they heard Paul and Silas singing, the ministry and the testimony through this psalm sing, that they listened to Paul and they stayed there in their cells. And so the jailer calls for lights and lights are brought and he rushes into the darkness and he finds Paul and Silas there and he falls down at their feet and he says to them, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I've always wondered the nature of that question. Because was the jailer asking, what must I do to be saved from judgment? From eternal punishment? Was he asking, what do I have to do to be saved from my Roman authorities who are going to come against me if any of you guys happen to escape? Like, can I coax you guys to go back in your cells and I would be saved? I... I I've studied many different theologians on exactly that question that the jailer asked. And there's many different opinions. Nobody can seem to settle on exactly what the motivation of his question was. But really the question doesn't matter to us as much as the answer that was given to him. For Paul and Silas say in response to what must I do to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And so regardless of what the jailer's motivation was behind his question, that is the answer that needs to be given 
to all of mankind. The way that you are saved is to trust in Jesus. And saved from so much, especially from the judgment of God, but saved from meaninglessness, from purposelessness, from joylessness, all of the different things that may burden and plague us, Christ relieves because of his goodness and his mercy toward us. So ultimately salvation from sin, from the wrath of God, from the wages of sin, which is death. But Christ gives us so much more, fulfilling what he had said in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so once the jailer had responded to what Paul and Silas had said to him, he brought them into his house and they preached to the jailer's family and baptized them. And the jailer's household came to believe in God. The Roman authorities were, uh, were embarrassed when they realized that they had imprisoned Roman citizens as Paul and Silas were. So they begged Paul and Silas to leave. The jailer actually comes back to Paul and Silas and says, hey, they found out you're Roman citizens and they're really embarrassed about all this and they're just kind of hoping you'll go. And Paul's like, no, no, we were unfairly treated. We were thrown in prison. They're going to have to come here and drag us out. Paul actually goes back to his cell and makes them have to take him out of the place. And so they just come and they, they just beg him to leave the city. Please go. And so that's from there where Paul and Silas go back to Lydia's house and they entreat the church that is meeting there in her home. About 12 years after this incident, about these things that took place in Philippi, Paul was imprisoned again for preaching the gospel. And this time, he appealed to Caesar and was sent to Rome, as we read about at the end of the book of Acts. And that's where Paul was when he wrote his letter to the Philippians, exhorting them not to be discouraged because of what had happened to him. If you still have your Bible open, look at Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14, and see what Paul says here to encourage the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what does Paul mean by this? Well, he isn't in stocks like he was in Philippi. This particular arrest was a house arrest. So he had a home there in Rome in which he had been kept until he could be brought before Caesar. And he was there in Rome for a couple of years. Well, when a man is under house arrest, he's not just told, go home and stay there and don't come out of your house. You know, like a parent would send uh, an unruly child to their room. That wasn't quite like this went. Paul, rather, was chained to a Roman guard. So he's there in his home, but to make sure he's going to stay there in his home, he has to be chained to a guard. He could not go anywhere, but people could come to him. And so people in Rome would come, the, the, the church that was meeting there especially, they would come into his house and they would be taught by him. Well, that Roman guard that's chained to him, what does that guard have to hear? Every day, day in and day out, he hears the preaching of the gospel, hears the preaching of the word, the application of the word. And so it is known among the whole praetorian guard 
why Paul is in prison there because he was preaching the gospel of Christ and I have to listen to that. And so it's actually served to advance the gospel. And there are even others that have been emboldened. They have courage because though Paul had been in prison, he didn't lose heart. Didn't even lose an iota of joy. This is the guy who, hey, you're going to throw me in prison? Great, hand me a hymnal. I'll convert all your prisoners and all your guards. And so when they see the joy in this man, though he had been thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, they are likewise emboldened to speak the word without fear. Now consider what Paul says next in verses 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul isn't speaking generally here. He's talking about something in, in particular that was happening during the time that he had been imprisoned there in Rome. And this is what had prompted this interaction with Paul and the Philippians through this particular letter. So after it had been discovered that Paul had been in prison and thrown in jail in Rome, there were preachers of the gospel that were saying, well, if Paul got caught and he got thrown in jail, then he must have done something legitimately wrong. God would not allow one of his faithful to be treated this way. That may, have been, may, may very well have been what some of these preachers were saying. And so they were disassociating themselves with Paul and maybe somewhat out of cowardice. I don't want anybody to find out that I'm in league with this guy. Maybe I'll get arrested and thrown in prison like he is. Well, the Philippians, this particular church, was, they were really troubled by this. They didn't feel that way. They didn't feel like they wanted to disconnect from Paul. Rather, they wanted to show their support and love for Paul and even encourage him and help to finance his ministry. So they took up an offering and had it sent by a man named Epaphroditus who traveled from Philippi to Rome, almost died on the journey, as Paul talks about in this letter. And he brings that offering to Paul, and Paul is writing this letter back to them, thanking them for that gift, but also using this as an opportunity to encourage that church to do all the more in the work that they are doing. And he even says of the gift that they have given to him, I don't need this, but I'm taking it so that you may be, may, may be filled with joy over your participation in the ministry that I am doing. And that's what leads Paul actually to say, I know what it means to be in want, and I know what it means to be in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so he writes this letter that's filled with joy, a man that's in prison, and yet he speaks over and over again about the joy of the Lord that is his strength. Some of the themes of this particular letter, it is an incredibly encouraging letter, but just like with, with Ephesians, Paul wasn't writing just because he wanted to say hello. Again, he was in prison for preaching the gospel, so wanted to give them uh, a word of encouragement, something that would uplift them. And sometimes when I read these letters that Paul has written, and I know something about the background of this letter in the church that he is writing to, I try to imagine not just Paul's tone and his inflection and some of the words that he says in each of these letters that he writes. 
I also try to imagine what would it have been like in the Philippian church when this letter came and it was read aloud. Because you have to tie into all of that some of the sacrifices that the Philippians themselves were making on behalf of Paul. They were grieved to hear that he was in prison. They sent one of their best who almost died on the way there. They took up their money to send to Paul to encourage him though he was in prison. And they get this letter back with Paul who's filled with joy and thanking them for this gift. And I just kind of have to wonder, as this is being read aloud by one of those elders in the Philippian church, how many eyes were wiping away tears as they were hearing of the good news of, of how this man is doing and the gospel that's being proclaimed through his ministry. The Praetorian Guard themselves were even being converted and coming to Christ. These soldiers that I get chained to have to hear the gospel when I preach it. And they're getting saved. In 2020, when the state of California wanted to shut down Grace Community Church, because out of obedience to God, they were going to continue to have church, even in the midst of COVID, officials in L.A. and the governor of California were threatening the arrest of John MacArthur, and they were going to throw him in jail. When he was interviewed on TV about it, MacArthur said, Well, I'm in my 80s. I've been preaching for 50 years. I've never had a jail ministry. So if it's the Lord's will that I should go to jail, I guess I'll start preaching there. And so here's Paul in jail preaching the gospel. The guards are getting saved. The brotherhood of believers are being emboldened to stand strong in the face of persecution. And as Paul says in verse 14, they have more courage to speak the word of God without fear. But as said, there were also some Men who are trying to make things difficult on Paul. But Paul writes to the Philippians to encourage them to do what is right. Not to try to get entangled in some of these different skirmishes. Even though there are some that try to afflict Paul in, in his imprisonment. Look at Paul's attitude about this in verse 18. Still in Philippians 1 verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So some of these guys may have bad motivations with, the, uh, with, with their, the direction that they take things, but the gospel's still being preached, and I'm thankful for that. What a mature attitude. When I don't know about you, but my tendency is to, oh, I'll show them what for. They want to argue, I'm ready for this. And that wasn't Paul's approach to this. He didn't waste time with them. Instead, he spent his time writing to and encouraging those people that he loved. So we, we see in this letter, there are five aims or objectives with this letter. First of all, Paul wants to thank the Philippians for their gospel ministry and support of Paul. As he says in verses 4 through 5 here in the first chapter, I pray for all of you because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then at the end of chapter 4, verse 14, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. His second aim is to inform the Philippians of his circumstances and how even being thrown in prison has helped to advance the gospel of Christ. In 2.23, he says, I hope to send Timothy to you immediately as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances. His third aim is to exhort the Philippians to grow in unity and strive to proclaim the gospel. As he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you may think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit and in purpose. It's also in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that we have what is referred to as the Carmen Christi, or the hymn of Christ. This is that passage of scripture that begins, Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of, one of the greatest presentations of the gospel that we have in Paul's letters, the Carmen Christi. And one of the things that I love about the inclusion of that in the Philippians is Paul knows this church. He knows these people, but he doesn't take anything for granted. Like, you know the gospel. I don't have to tell you what the gospel is. He encourages them in the gospel anyway. And that has been a witness to me in my ministry that I would not just assume that when somebody tells me, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, that they know what the gospel is. My friends, most of the people that you encounter who say, I'm a Christian, especially here in the United States of America, most of them have no idea what the gospel is. When we did our homeless outreach, uh, Lawrence was there. He was one that went along with us as we were reaching out to them over that Thanksgiving weekend and I would encounter some of them in the park and I would ask them if they were a Christian. Uh, I don't think any of them said no. There was a young man that very clearly was not a Christian, but even he said that he was, said that he was baptized when he was a kid or something like that when I asked him if he was a Christian. But even though they would say that they were a Christian, I just didn't just want to leave it at that. I would ask them further questions. So you know that when you die, where are you going to go? Are you going to go to heaven or hell? Do you know what that means? Uh, do you know what it means to, to say that you've been saved, that Jesus saved you? What has he saved you from? So that they can hear in answering those questions, they can hear with their own ears what's coming out of their own mouths that they really don't know what they're professing when they say that they're a Christian. But the heart has been tilled for something because they, they confess, they make this declaration, I am a Christian, so there's, there's some understanding of that that they have. So hopefully the ears are open, the heart is unstopped, that they can hear the truth of the gospel when I share it with them. But not taking anything for granted, not just assuming that everybody knows Paul knows this, these brethren know the gospel, and yet he encourages them in the gospel anyway. A reminder to me to never just take for granted that everybody knows the gospel. We need to continue to be encouraged in the gospel. Paul's fourth aim here is to warn against false teachers and follow godly examples. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, Paul says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In three seventeen to 19, Paul says, 
Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction and their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But listen to this, verses 20 and 21. And this, this is a great couple of verses to have memorized uh, for witnessing to others and giving encouragement to them, if, especially when they're feeling age and the aches of pains, uh, the aches and pains of the body that come upon everyone who gets older, and that's everybody. Verses 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What encouragement that is. Yeah, we're feeling it in our bodies now, but a day is coming in which God is going to transform our lowly bodies to be like the glorious body of Christ. And we won't have to worry about these knee braces like Josh has to wear today anymore. Our... Our lowly bodies will be made brand new and will be made incorruptible. At the beginning of the letter, Paul had said, he was talking about his, his time in prison, and he says, you know, I, I want to go home because to depart from the body is to be present with the Lord. But to stay here is better for you because then you get the encouragement and the teaching of an apostle. What then? Do I go or do I stay? But it is uh, rather... Uh, that he would desire that Christ would be proclaimed. As said, this is a great verse to memorize, Philippians 1, 21, and you've surely heard it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I remember uh, a friend of mine, Ken Davis, was teaching on that particular passage and, uh, and he said, uh, you know, the false teachers, the Pharisees, the Judaizers, they would come against Paul. They would say, Paul, if you don't shut up, we're gonna kill you. And Paul would go, well, that's great. You kill me, I get promoted. And then they get in their huddle and they go, what do we do? We can't promote him. You couldn't say anything to keep this guy down. So that even when he was in jail, he continues to glorify Christ and says to live, even if I live in a dank cell, it is to live as Christ and to die is gain. Is that our hope and our outlook in life as well? Finally, the fifth aim in this letter, and this comes back to the theme that I had mentioned in the very beginning, it's to encourage true joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that is bound up in that. His life, his death, his resurrection, and the promise of his eternal kingdom, which we are citizens of even now. Again, back to that statement where Paul says our, our citizenship is in heaven, and we are citizens of of that glorious kingdom even now in Christ. Paul wants them to be filled with joy, not as some facade, but because we are genuinely hopeful and encouraged by the fact that Christ is risen. Our citizenship is not on this earth. This is not our final resting place. And in that, we rejoice. So as Paul was filled with joy was overjoyed, spoke joy to the Philippians, even though this man finds himself in a cell 
or under house arrest and chained to a Roman guard, if he could be filled with joy, then my friends, in our circumstances, we need to be filled with joy as well. And that's how Philippians continues to minister to me and encourage me. That I would be filled with joy. And the source of my joy is not my circumstances. Very clearly the, the, the source of Paul's joy was not his circumstances. The source of his joy was Christ. And so may Christ be our joy and our peace as we finish one year and head into the next. Let me, lead you, uh, let me leave you with these three things that we can also draw from Philippians, and then we're going to sing a song at the close here. Number one, there is joy in prayer as Paul prays for the Philippians. In 1.4, Paul says that he is always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. And in 4.6 that we read at the beginning, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Next, there is joy in suffering. In chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's joy in prayer. There's joy in suffering. Next, there is joy in progress. Chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Verse 12, what has happened to me has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then in 3, 13 to 14, brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's joy in prayer, there's joy in suffering, there is joy in progress. Finally, there is joy in Christ. Sure, the word joy is mentioned 15 times in this letter, but the name of Jesus is given 35 times in this letter to the Philippians. When we read about joy here, this is not some forced human attitude. I'm just going to grin and bear it. This is joy that flows out from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who left his throne in heaven, came down to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and was highly exalted to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus could suffer and die for the glory of the Father, as stated in chapter 2, verse 11. So we likewise can do the same. For as Paul said in Philippians 1, 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's finish there with prayer.